from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 8th. Today, what's at stake if Amazon workers unionize? The future of community colleges and the backlash against vaccine passports. Last week, the counting of the ballots in a union election at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, began. Jay Green writes about technology for The Post. There was a seven-week mail-in voting period for that union election that ended on March 29th, and so the ballots began to be counted. This is probably the biggest union battle we've seen in this country in years. You know, right now, Amazon's the second largest private employer in the country behind Walmart. It's never had a union shop in the United States. And so these nearly 6,000 workers at this warehouse will have the opportunity to be represented by the retail, wholesale, and department store union. And so it's really pitting one of the biggest employers in the country against big labor. And it's really drawn, actually, the attention of, you know, some notable folks, including the president of the United States. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic, the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. Joe Biden, you know, produced a video to support these workers a few weeks ago. And there should be no intimidation No coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. Bernie Sanders has gone down to Alabama to offer his support. And when I was down in Birmingham talking to the workers, what you heard is tales of incredibly bad working conditions, people who are disrespected, people whose concerns are not being heard, and they want a union to represent them. It has really shaped into you know, one of the most high-profile union battles of the last several decades. And I just want to put in the disclaimer that we always have to say, which is that Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon, he also owns the Washington Post. But in terms of the workers who are fighting to unionize right now, what do they say about why it's so important for them to be able to unionize? There's a wide range, as you might expect. Some of them would like better pay. Some of them would like a little more dignity uh, and respect. A lot of it comes down to the fact that Amazon warehouses are hard places to work. You know, Amazon warehouses require their workers generally to make something called rate. And rate is a performance metric. And so these workers often have to pick a certain number of packages off the shelves within an hour or box a number of those packages and get them out the door within a, you know, within an hour. And those rates, as I say, can be pretty aggressive. And so what some of the workers would would like is to have some say over what that rate is and maybe make it a little bit more uh, uh, tolerable for their conditions. I would also say it's interesting. The warehouse in Bessemer is predominantly employed by black workers, and the union who is that is organizing those workers has also framed this as a matter of of civil rights as much as labor rights. And as I say, they they really focus on issues of dignity and respect in addition to working conditions and better pay. 
And then why is Amazon opposing this effort to unionize? Why do they say that it would be bad for them as a company and even for these workers? Amazon will say very basically that, listen, they pay people pretty darn well. Uh, and it's true in Alabama, these, you know, Amazon's well above the, uh, the minimum wage and they offer them benefits. I, I think there's another piece that Amazon doesn't talk about, but is true as well, which is the company really prizes its flexibility. Amazon wants the ability to hire and, and cut workers as needs arise. You know, uh, the retail business is traditionally up and down. You know, the holiday season comes and Amazon needs to ramp up workers, and so it'll want to hire workers quickly. But when January rolls around, it probably doesn't need as many, and so it can let them go. And so I think that flexibility is a big piece of it. And I'd also say just one other piece of the flexibility is Amazon's move very aggressively into robotics. And, you know, robots can replace workers. And if uh, Amazon wants to automate a warehouse, it needs to have the ability to to do that, it feels. And uh, a union could get in the way of that, too. So one of the things that I've heard Amazon tout about its role in these warehouses all over the country, and I think other people have, have said as well, is that they are bringing a significant amount of jobs to towns in places that don't see a lot of job growth, right? Like these are not just jobs in New York, D.C., San Francisco. I mean, they're going to places and hiring a lot of people in places where people really need jobs. So is there a concern that these unionization efforts are going to discourage Amazon and other companies from trying to bring their facilities to places in in parts of the country that actually need job growth? You know, Amazon has not made that argument. And I think one of the reasons why is you can actually look at Europe where Amazon operates and has a lot of unions. You know, the workers uh, at Amazon's warehouses in Germany and France and Spain and Italy are organized and they're in remote towns there. And Amazon operates just fine, in fact, does quite well and has beaten back rivals in those markets, too. And so I think the idea that they may not, you know, be able to succeed seems, you know, to be countered by the fact that they're doing well with union workers in other parts of the world. I do think there is a fear and there certainly has been some rumblings among workers that, you know, if a union comes in, Amazon could shut down this warehouse in Bessemer. Amazon hasn't said that publicly. I think it would be a a political challenge for the company to do so. So that would surprise me uh, if it goes in that direction. And I guess the other point I'd make is that Amazon needs these warehouses. It isn't just throwing up warehouses in, you know, remote parts of the country to give people work. It's doing it because it wants to get packages to customers quickly. And so could Amazon shut down this warehouse? It could. But then all of a sudden, the people of the uh, metro Birmingham, Alabama area would have to wait a little bit longer to get their packages. And that would put Amazon at a disadvantage with the, you know, the shops uh, that operate in that region. You know, you mentioned that part of the reason why these Amazon employees are seeking to be part of a union is because the work is so challenging. But I think that that kind of, I don't want to say glosses over, but but doesn't paint the picture of some of the, the true horror stories that we've heard about what it is actually like to work in Amazon facilities. What are some of the anecdotes or examples that you have heard about the in some cases, very egregious things that people are reporting about their working conditions there. 
Yeah. So, I mean, these go back years, too, but there have been, you know, reports of workers certainly being injured. Amazon jumped on a tweet not that long ago from a politician who pointed to reports that workers are are so pressed for time that they have to pee in bottles uh, because they don't get breaks or they can't take enough time during their shift to run to the the restroom. Does Amazon confirm that that is, in fact, the case? Initially, Amazon pushed back on that and said, you don't believe this is true. Their, their Twitter account, uh, account tweeted, you know, somewhat incredulously uh, at Representative Mark Pocan of, of Wisconsin, who, who had tweeted that. A few days later, actually, Amazon did something that I, I think some folks thought was unthinkable, which is they apologized. And Amazon said, you know what, we're wrong. This does happen. It doesn't happen just at our facilities, but, or, or with our drivers, but with drivers of other companies, too. But it, it actually recanted and said it was sorry, which was, uh, I think, surprised a lot of folks. So how has Amazon taken active steps to oppose this potential unionization? Well, they've done a number of things, and some of them are classic union opposition efforts, and, and some of them maybe going go a little farther. But the basic ones are things like mandatory meetings uh, for workers, and the company's been allowed to do that right up until the election process began. But it would literally take workers off of their shifts, put them in a conference room, run them through a PowerPoint about why unions aren't good. Or it would, you know, text them several times a day saying, you know, stick with the team. There have been some allegations that Amazon's also trying to prevent the union from conveying its message to workers. There's a stoplight outside of the warehouse where workers, you know, leave as they head home. And the stoplight times had been longer uh, at the start of the union drive, and it gave union representatives an opportunity to talk with workers and tell them about why they thought the union was a worthwhile thing to join. Over the course of the election, the time of the red light got shorter, and uh, it got shorter, as folks have reported, because Amazon asked the uh, government to shorten the time so that you know workers couldn't uh, have those conversations. Now, to be fair, Amazon says it actually asked to shorten that time to move traffic more more quickly through the, the stoplight and may, be more efficient. But nonetheless, that that's one example of uh, uh, where the union has pointed to that show that Amazon's been aggressively pushing back on some of this. And I'll just say another one is interesting. Every year, Amazon offers warehouse workers money to leave. Uh, they give them a, a not insignificant sum if they're unhappy at their warehouse to walk. And Amazon has done this for the last several years. And they've done it because they want unhappy workers not to be there. But in the context of this election, that offer, and it's actually called the offer, uh, has come under uh, some scrutiny as well, because, you know, it could be seen as Amazon's paying workers who are unhappy with the union to leave the company. So what are the potential ramifications if these workers are actually able to to be part of a union? The big one is these workers uh, then have an opportunity to fight for a contract and and change the, you know the nature of their work at the company. But maybe even more important, it could inspire other workers, uh, other Amazon workers, to try to organize as well. You know the the RWDSU, the union that's trying to organize these workers, has told me that they've received a thousand inquiries since the union drive began from workers at other Amazon facilities about trying to organize their operations. And and what's interesting about that is, you know, even if this union wins, it doesn't mean that those workers automatically get to join the union. But the enthusiasm that they have for this drive, uh, you know, would only be, you know, fueled by a victory. And you could imagine 
that the union would try to organize other Amazon facilities as well. And then what happens if these workers lose this effort and they're not able to unionize? Well, I think it, it, it pours cold water on those efforts to try and organize elsewhere. I think that's the, the, the big concern for, for labor broadly. You know, the enthusiasm and the, you know, the fire, the passion that this union effort has, you know, has stoked could very quickly be put out as well. So in the coming weeks, what should we expect to see in this union election? The workers had seven weeks to vote. Uh, that period ended on March 29th. And for the last seven or eight days, the union and Amazon have been given the opportunity to challenge ballots before the National Labor Relations Board starts what folks are calling the public count of those ballots. And so some 3,200 or so Uh, of those workers have voted, several hundred ballots have been challenged, and they've been challenged for a variety of reasons. Some of the workers uh, have left the company, and that's because, well, there's a lot of turnover at Amazon. Uh, Some of the workers may no longer be in positions covered by the union. They may be managers, and those folks would be ineligible to vote. Sometimes the ballots are challenged because the signature doesn't appear right. As those challenge ballots are set aside, the National Labor Relations Board then will begin the public part of the counting of the of the vote. And that begins actually today on Thursday. But we should know preliminarily in the next couple of days uh, which way this vote is headed. Jay Green is a tech reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. Community colleges are kind of the all-purpose schools, the workhorses of American higher education. My name is Nick Anderson. I write about higher education for The Post, which takes me to college campuses around the country. The wonderful thing about these colleges is they serve a very broad audience. I once heard a community college leader say, with some pride, we accept the top 100%. They really don't exclude anybody. When President Biden unveiled his $2 trillion infrastructure plan last week, he made community colleges a priority. In the American Jobs Plan, they are supposed to get $12 billion. I tell the kids, the young people who work for me, told my kids, but I go on college campuses. They're going to see more change in the next 10 years than we've seen in the last 50 years. Post Reports producer Jordan Murray Smith talked with Nick about why this is such a big deal, especially as community colleges are seeing low enrollment. It has often been the case that community colleges are a place where people go when the economy turns sour. Interestingly, last year... We all looked for that pattern to happen again after the pandemic occurred and after the economy really took a beating because of the pandemic. We thought as reporters, we were all looking for community colleges to get more students because of the bad economy. But this time it didn't happen. It was really surprising. Nobody saw that coming. Everybody thought that community colleges would be the place that people would go during the pandemic 
to get skills and to shelter during the storm of the economy that was occurring. But it didn't work out that way. So why didn't it work out that way? Why aren't as many people going to community colleges compared to like other times of national economic crisis? Well, there are theories. Most of the theories that I have heard have to do with the social problems that the pandemic caused. Now, if you have a lack of childcare because your children need somebody to stay home with them and uh, the pandemic doesn't allow you to drop them off at a daycare center, that's a problem because a lot of community college students might be young parents or young adults who, who need to coordinate childcare in order to attend school. That's one thing. Another thing, frankly, is that there's a technological issue here, which is that a lot of the students who go to community college are disadvantaged students who might not have the access to Wi-Fi and strong laptops and computer connections that would enable them to study remotely. Because remember, a lot of the education during the pandemic has been remote. And so people who would ordinarily be going to a campus are now being asked to sign on to go to school. And if you don't have the gear to make an effective sign-on, you might decide, eh, I can put off going to school. So those are some reasons. I think people are still trying to figure that out. But I'm curious, Nick, did you talk to any students who, despite all of the problems that are going on with community colleges right now, they still find a way to succeed? Well, community colleges, let's be clear, are functioning right now and doing their job, right? The students who are enrolled in community college are, as we speak, applying to transfer to four-year schools and they're getting their associate's degrees and they're earning certificates and other things that will help them on their careers. My name is Jose Alvarez. I'm 21. I live in Union, New Jersey. Jose is a student whom I met at Union County College. At first, I didn't really think about college. I actually enlisted in the Marine Corps right after high school. As he told me, he's working several hours a week uh, at a Panera. He's also a Marine reservist, and so he has obligations to the Marines. And he's transferring to a four-year school, and he wants to become an engineer. So it's been pretty good. I met a lot of good people. And um, a lot of people like helped me on my way to like transfer even like some people like trying to help me is like my military career as well. But for students who aren't Jose, who might have been forced to drop out or reconsider their plans to go to community college. I'm curious, how is that hindering social and economic mobility because they don't have access to these institutions? Yeah, this is a major, major issue why people are worried about a drop in enrollment in community college. Right now, the nation is, in addition to the pandemic, the nation is going through an intense period of search for social justice and racial justice and economic justice. And the very people who um, would be most in line to benefit from a more just society on all of those counts tend to be community college students. Let me give you a couple of figures. The uh, enrollment at community colleges 
is about 26% Latino or Hispanic. That's a, that's a major share of community college students. It's about 13% Black or African American, also a major share of community college students. Uh, many community college students qualify for financial assistance uh, because they don't have enough income to pay all of their bills. So when you think about the, uh, the pandemic, you have to think about, too, the engine of social mobility that community colleges are supposed to be. And for some reason, the engine is in stall right now. It's sputtering. So this is what everybody in Washington who tracks higher education is watching very closely. The president's wife, Dr. Jill Biden, is herself a community college professor. She teaches English at Northern Virginia Community College, which is one of the largest community colleges in the country. We need widespread access to affordable education. And during the presidential campaign, then-candidate Biden advocated strongly for programs to offer free tuition to qualified students for community college. College, community college, they should be free in my view. And so we're watching closely to see whether any legislation will emerge in the next several weeks or months that addresses President Biden's campaign promises. It would be a major step if the federal government were to in any way try to offer free community college to the nation. What are the other solutions here that lawmakers are looking at? Sure. Well, one thing that is a perennial idea for access to higher education is to increase grants to students in need. The main driver of that in the federal higher education system is the Pell Grant. So the more access there is to Pell Grants, the larger the maximum Pell Grant, the more widely available the Pell Grant is to to more income levels, the better for community colleges, certainly, and probably for a broad swath of higher education. So it's possible that the Congress and the president will look at the Pell Grant. There's another idea, too, which is getting some some traction, which is to, in some way, minimize or reduce student debt. And so I think they'll be looking very closely at that. Sometimes students take out loans to go to community college, not because the community college tuition itself is expensive, but because living expenses are unavoidable. So, Nick, as you mentioned, Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady, teaches at a community college. Does having someone like her in the White House change anything for community colleges on a larger scale? Well, it's important to know that community colleges have a deep constituency politically in America. They have both Republican and Democratic support, and they help supply the economy with skilled workers, and they represent a starting point for education around the country. So much of our educational system is geared toward the big name schools, 
they don't necessarily recognize Union County College or Montgomery College or Northern Virginia Community College, even though those schools are all over the country and they're part of our backyard. The White House and Dr. Biden, they have brought community colleges up to the front of the table. They've always been at the table, but now they're at the front of the table. And we'll see what happens. Nick Anderson writes about higher education for The Post. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer with Post Reports. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now one more thing, and I'm turning it over to producer Rennie Svernofsky. So Dan Diamond, national health reporter for The Post, what is a vaccine passport? Vaccine passports are a fancy way of saying vaccine proof of documentation. The idea that if you are one of the 100 million Americans who have already gotten at least one shot of the vaccine, that this would be an easier way of proving your status rather than having that piece of paper that gets handed out at a vaccination site. And this is also happening around the world too, with different countries pursuing digital certificates that would allow people entering a stadium, getting on an airplane, going somewhere where there might be a confined space that you're in for a significant amount of time and being able to prove that you have some protection from COVID-19. So who's pushing for the existence of these vaccine passports? Well, there are a lot of groups pushing for it. There are a lot of groups pushing against. But I think business is especially interested in a vaccine passport. There have been sectors of the economy decimated by COVID-19. The travel industry, movie theaters, cruise lines. I, I think if you're looking at businesses where people would be together for an extended period of time, potentially in an enclosed space where we know COVID-19 can transmit pretty effectively and efficiently. Those are the businesses that have been most keen on some sort of standard that would allow people to prove that they've been vaccinated. And actually, before you go on, what sets these passports or certificates apart from things like, you know, the vaccine cards that you're given when you get vaccinated? Well, one, these would be digital, not paper. 
Now, interestingly, because not everyone might have a smartphone, you can then print these digital certificates and present them just like you'd have with a paper card. I think, second, this would be a mix of health data. It wouldn't just be vaccinations necessarily. Mm. Maybe you've gotten a recent COVID test and you'd be able to um, present that data as well. And I think what also would set these digital passports apart from the paper trackers is it would rely on a more centralized system. Right now, people are going, getting their shots, putting a photo of their paper card up on social media, which in some respects is great. It's it's inspiring other people to join the vaccination push. But that also creates real privacy concerns. And to instead have something that is digital and protected and only you as the person vaccinated have access to, it just creates more protections and also better ways for public health experts to know who has been vaccinated and where. So what hurdles could advocates of these passports and developers for these apps run into? Well, Rennie, I think one big hurdle is that there are so many different apps under consideration. Mm -hmm. We reported at The Post a few days ago about the Biden administration's attempt to corral all the efforts that are already begun. The Biden team had identified at least 17 different initiatives, whether private companies or nonprofit coalitions, the World Health Organization, all looking into different ways to do this. Now, that could create a collision where there might be a dozen different vaccine passports in circulation. It makes it that much harder to figure out what the standards behind these passports would would be. I think a second concern is that the vaccine passports are privileging people who have been lucky enough to get vaccinated. We already know that there are big equity gaps between people who may have gotten vaccines early versus those who may still be waiting. And if we're starting to reward people who already got shots or create further divides between the haves and have-nots. Are there other concerns, such as about data privacy, especially if this is a bunch of different organizations coming at this in a bunch of different ways? Yes. And one fear has been that there would be some centralized database of everyone who's been vaccinated, and that the passports would pull from that, and that database could create new privacy risks. The Biden administration has said they have no plan in the United States to pursue that approach. Uh, There will be no federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. It may be done in other countries that have different health systems, national health systems, also very different relationships with how local officials might make decisions, but in the U.S. Our interest is very simple, from the federal government, which is Americans' privacy and rights should be protected and so, the, so that these systems are not used against people unfairly. And then I think another hurdle is the amount of Republican resistance. There have been several governors, Florida's DeSantis, Texas's Greg Abbott, who've said that they want to outlaw vaccine passports in their state. Government should not require any Texan to show proof of vaccination and reveal private health information just to go about their daily lives. That is why I issued an executive order that prohibits government-mandated vaccine passports in Texas. 
Now, it's not clear if they actually have the legal authority to do that. I was talking to Mark Hall, a professor at Wake Forest, about this. He thinks it's questionable, given that governors may not actually have the authority over public health this way. But it's going to set up almost certainly legal battles and further headaches for people, for businesses trying to roll out vaccine passports in those states. It creates another cloud in what has already been a heavily politicized response for the past year. Only about 40% of adults, less than 50% for sure, have been vaccinated so far in the United States. These passports are probably still some weeks away from being encouraged more en masse. There are pilots underway in the state of New York, in certain travel routes to use these passports, but we're not at a point yet where they're so widespread. Dan Diamond is a national health reporter for The Post. Renny Svernovsky is a producer with Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. You can learn more about the stories in this episode at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 